Our suggested reading this morning is Mark, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 1. Jesus left and went back to his hometown. His followers went with him. On the Sabbath day, Jesus taught in the synagogue, and many people heard him. They were amazed and said, Where did this man get his teaching? How did he get such wisdom? Who gave it to him? And where did he get the power to do miracles? Isn't he just the carpenter we know? Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And don't his sisters still live here in town? So they had a problem accepting him. Then Jesus said to them, People everywhere give honor to a prophet, except in his hometown, with his own people, or in his home. Jesus was not able to do any miracles there except the healing of some sick people by laying his hands on them. He was surprised that the people there had no faith. Then he went to other villages in that area and taught. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Good morning, church. Wow, I'm a little loud up there. It's been a beautiful weekend so far. I mean, it's just, just gorgeous. We have uh, a lot of folks gone on uh, fall break, and so uh, be thinking about them as they're traveling. But uh, appreciate it if you're visiting with us here and you've come into town for fall break. Appreciate that as well. We will be in Mark chapter 6, so if you want to turn there and be able to follow along, that'd be great. Have you ever uh, noticed that when, when you watch children, and I'm talking about young children, I'm not talking about children like that, those folks over there, I'm talking about young children that you can't help but smile, that it just kind of comes on your face as you watch them do almost anything. I mean, they were just sleeping and your smile comes on your face. And, and perhaps it's because they remind us of things that somehow we have forgotten. You know, they remind us of the pure joy of being alive and, and they have this sense of wonder as they look at anything in the world and discover things for the very first time. I mean, through them, we can see, again, what we once saw when we ourselves were children. As you watch a, a child smell a flower and their eyes light up, or, or you watch them stare at a butterfly, wide-eyed, or you see a child running through a field of grass with just pure joy and delight on their face. It's amazing. And you begin to remember what it was like when, when you didn't take such things for granted. You know, children find joy in the simplest of pleasures. I mean, think about running through a sprinkler. When was the last time you did that? Or playing in a mud puddle. Now, I don't, I don't actually remember ever playing in a mud puddle. I'm sure I did. But what is it about playing in a mud puddle that they love so much? Do you remember the first time you ever saw the ocean? And you stood there and you saw the vast expanse for the first time. And you were just amazed and marveled at its size and its beauty as a child. You know, as we grow older, we just become accustomed to these things, right? And they begin to become merely the background for our lives. And they become so familiar to us 
that we really even cease to see them for what they really are. We lose our sense of wonder. See, as, a, as adults, we like things well-ordered and predictable. We like to understand, to know, to categorize and label. And so we have placed things, we've placed the world around us into categories, that, at least as we perceive them. And, and so we have names for everything. We say, that's a dog, or that's a tree. And we begin to miss perhaps the uniqueness of each individual thing because we lump them all together as if they're all the same. And we just dismiss them as if we already know them because they're not worth detailed attention. I mean, when was the last time you got up close and personal with a tree and recognized the intricate pattern on the bark and just stared at that? Or you saw perhaps the veining on a blade of grass. I mean, you, you walk up here. Well, some of us six feet, you know, others five feet above the, the grass. Have you ever gotten down and, and stuck your face right there and noticed the beauty that is right in front of you? Well, children are down there already, right? They see it all the time, and it's a wonderful thing. It's so easy to get caught up in the routine that we miss the profound our familiarity with the world around us can, can cause us to lose that sense of wonder, that sense of awe that we once had as children. And the same thing can be true of our faith, that the excitement that we once had as young Christians can slip away into this settled comfort of the routine and the familiar. And the fire which burns so brightly at one time can slowly fade into a dying ember. And if we're not careful... That fire, if left untended, might go out completely. And so the story that we're going to address this morning serves as a warning. A warning to not let our familiarity with Jesus slip into this old and tired faith. So let's look at this, uh, this story in chapter 6. You see, Jesus has just returned from the healing of Jairus' daughter, and he's going to his hometown of Nazareth. It's really just a village of about uh, 300 folks, so a very small kind of place. And we can assume from the Gospels that the reputation of Jesus has been spreading all over Galilee. And Galilee, by the way, isn't that large of a place either. But his hometown folk have begun to hear stories about this man, stories of healing and exorcism, stories of this new and powerful teacher. Some are even saying perhaps a prophet. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is the first time that Jesus has returned home since he began his ministry. And on a Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue, as was his practice. But remember, this is the synagogue he grew up in. And he's surrounded by people who knew him as a child, who watched him grow up and become a man. They know his family. He was once one of them, not that long ago. But now he comes to town with reputation. And some are saying that he's even special. And he begins to teach. And the story begins as we've seen many others in the gospel, very similar, same kind of language. Uh, the people are astounded. In fact, this is identical to the very first time Jesus went into a synagogue uh, in Mark chapter 1. They're astounded. And the questions they ask at first seem to indicate a positive evaluation of Jesus. Look at verses two and uh, verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. 
Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Now, they seem duly impressed. We can't be sure if the questions are referring to things that they've heard about Jesus or if they're referring to things that they're actually seeing before them that very day. The end of the story would indicate that it's more likely things that they've heard, not necessarily things that they're witnessing themselves. But look at the next verse. Here's where their real attitude begins to show through. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, in Matthew's version, uh, Jesus is called the son of a carpenter. Here in Mark, he's actually called a carpenter himself, which is one of the only indications that we have that Jesus continued on in the trade of his father. The Greek word here is tekton, which means builder. And it's kind of a generic term. It can mean something, uh, a builder in wood or stone. And it can mean something like a skilled craftsman, like a carpenter as we would think of. But it could also be a more generic term, meaning simply a construction worker. You know, somebody who builds houses and other kinds of buildings. And just as an aside, many scholars believe that Joseph, Jesus' father, had perhaps been working on a project only uh, an hour's walk away in the major town of Sepphoris. Sepphoris was Herod Antipas's capital city in Galilee, and he started working on this when Jesus was just a boy, and, and it took many years to complete. And so it's a Greco-Roman style city, and many speculate that, that Joseph was here, and if so, that this could have been a place where Jesus apprenticed as a tectone, as a builder. And that it would have been here that he would have learned of the oppression of Herod Antipas' uh, uh, kingdom and the way he was oppressing the poor and his uh, tax structure and so forth. But we can't know that for sure. But look again at verse 3. It's this last line of the verse that we want to pay attention to. They took offense at him. You see, this isn't the reaction that Jesus had received from the crowds elsewhere. And indeed, it might be quite a, a shock for us to see this, because you think, you know, wouldn't the local folks be especially proud? Here's the hometown kid who makes good. Yet Jesus says it's precisely because they know him that they took offense at him. Jesus said, verse 4, only in their own towns, among their relatives and their own homes, are prophets without honor. It is specifically their familiarity with Jesus that is causing this lack of belief. To them, he's simply the carpenter. He's one of us. We know his mother. We know his brothers and sisters. Who does he think he is putting on airs like this? You know, how can you listen to someone uh, teaching with authority whose diapers you've changed? You've got memories of this young boy. Jesus has forgotten his place. And it goes on in verses 5 and 6. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, we shouldn't assume that Jesus' power was limited by their lack of faith. But this story does make a strong connection between faith and, and miracles. Because, you see, miracles are intended not to prove Jesus' identity, but they're signs of the kingdom's presence. 
Jesus is not trying to, to force people to believe, but he's making the kingdom visible through his miracles. And there are many other stories in the Gospels where faith doesn't seem to be required in order for Jesus to act, for a miracle to take place. But in the last several stories leading up to this, there, were, there has been an emphasis on faith. So in Jesus' stilling of the storm, he questions where their faith is. In the healing of Jairus' daughter, he calls him to a new level of faith. And you might remember with the, the woman who had a bleeding hemorrhage that she had a specific kind of faith that he lauds and applauds because she just believed she'd have to reach out and touch him to be healed. But here in the hometown, he doesn't find that kind of faith. In fact, he finds very little faith. And he's amazed at their lack of faith, which is, if you've been following the gospel very closely, it's, it's ironic, because all through the gospel to this point, it's the crowds who've been amazed at Jesus, but now it's his turn to be amazed, because they don't believe. So what do we do with this story? How do we understand this rejection? And I think two points come to mind as I reflect on this. The first one is that in the story of Mark here, we see evidence and a testimony to the normalcy of Jesus' childhood. You see, one might be shocked to think that a group of people that were privy to a virgin birth and all the signs and prophetic pronouncements and angelic visitations surrounding his birth would react in such a way. But you might remember that in Mark, there is no birth narrative. And in Matthew and Luke, the ones that do, even there, there's indications that these events were not as widely known nor as clearly understood as we do, nor we might perceive that they did. Even in Jesus' family, we find that they had doubts during his ministry. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 21, you're going to find that Jesus' family shows up wanting to take him in hand because they think he's out of his mind. They don't know what to do with Jesus. This is uncharacteristic of him. And so it's a little bit different. Now, this was very different from the later Christian perspectives. You see what happens, especially as you get into the second and third centuries, is people began to speculate on what it would have looked like for Jesus, the, law, the small boy, to live in Nazareth growing up as fully God and fully man. And so they created all kinds of stories. They imagined the little Lord Jesus imposing his will as a five-year-old boy. And so I'm going to share just a few of those stories. Some of you might recognize these. I think we've talked about them before. But three of them, very kind of interesting little tales. This is from when Jesus is like five or six. So one day he is, uh, these are second century stories. He's playing by the brook of a stream. And he's forming little clay pigeons out of the mud. And, and uh, unfortunately for him, it happens to be the Sabbath when he's doing this. And there's a little boy there that is a tattletale who runs off to tell his parents. And Joseph comes and says, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus claps his hands. The birds fly away. And he says, as if to say, you know, what pigeons are you talking about? I don't see any clay pigeons. In a second story, Jesus is playing with a, a friend up on a roof and the, and the boy falls down and dies. And the parents come and they begin to accuse Jesus and say, you pushed our boy off the roof. And he says, I did not. And he raises the boy up. He says, Zenon, come alive. Tell me, did I push you off the roof? And Zenon says, no, my Lord, but you have raised me up. And then a third story is from Jesus is uh, working with his father in the carpentry shop. And 
and, and, and Joseph has a problem. He's trying to make this bed for a wealthy client, and he, and he measures the two pieces, the long pieces of the bed, and one happens to be uh, too short. And he's like, oh no, what will I do? And Jesus says, don't worry about it. Just make it even on your end. And then Jesus pulls and stretches the piece of wood so that they are now even. And Joseph, of course, is overjoyed and thanks God that he has such a wonderful child to help him out. Those are the kinds of stories that the second and third century Christians imagined. But that doesn't fit what the Gospels say. See, the Gospels would indicate that Jesus was very normal in his upbringing. That he lived a quiet life in the small village in the hill country of Galilee with no obvious or overt indications of who he would become. You see, God forces no one to believe. Everyone has a choice. And, and so Jesus comes among us as a man. And he looks like a man. Which leads to the second point I'd like to reflect on, and that is the hometown crowd had no expectation whatsoever that Jesus would be a great teacher or a prophet, let alone the Messiah. They didn't think that way. In fact, it was their familiarity with Jesus. It was their familiarity with Jesus that caused them not to be able to see. To see Him as a carpenter only. See, they focused on what they knew. For them, he was the son of Mary. He was the brother of James and Joseph and Judas. He was the small town boy who had gotten too big for his britches. Their categories defined him. He was to them what they'd always seen him to be. And they were not able to see what God was doing right in front of their eyes. They were blind to the wonders of His miracles. They were deaf to the transformative power of His teaching. Jesus was there like an unopened present. The kingdom eluded them. The folks at Nazareth saw only a carpenter. And in so doing, they missed a Savior. He had been there all along, and they missed it. Now, you might be thinking, well, this story has, has no relevance to us. I mean, after all, we believe in Jesus. We have seen, we recognize that he's a savior. We follow him, we have faith. But I think the warning is, is a little bit more subtle for us as we think through this story. The danger is that just like the hometown crowd, our familiarity with Jesus can lead us to miss the work of God. It, it's as the old saying goes, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. And, and think back a moment to the time that you were first a Christian. Do you remember that? Do you remember that young Christians are full of energy and excitement, especially those who are converted from the world, right, to whom it's all fresh and new, and the grace of God is, is a, a truly profound experience. I mean, I've seen it in the eyes of young Christians, that flame that's burning. You know, they're eager to learn. They want to know the will of God. I mean, they're at everything. You know, if you open the doors, they're there. They are all in, as we say. But then over time, something predictable happens. They begin to settle in and settle down. And that raging fire became, becomes a steady flame. And in some ways, that's actually necessary. It's, it's healthy because if you, if you go on raging too much, you'll burn out. But that steady flame is what's important. But with the passage of time, that steady fire can become merely burning embers. 
and a faith that was once strong and vibrant can become old and stale. The things that caused us to believe are long since past as older Christians. Like an untended flame, a a neglected faith can become a pale reflection of what it once was. You see, faith is a living thing, and if if it's starved for oxygen, it goes out. It's like a fire that has been smothered. And this story warns us of a faith long untended, of a faith that has not been fed in a while. It warns us of a comfortable faith, about a predictable faith. Beware of seeing everything as the same old, same old, that that experience can become jaded. And you can think that there's nothing new. There's a been there, done that kind of attitude when it comes to Christianity. Oh yes, that's just... Christianity, my Christian faith. As a, as a professor of Bible, I, I, I see it in my 18-year-olds who come into freshman Bible thinking, we know the Bible, we know those stories, we've been going to Sunday school all our lives. Think about what it's like for 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 80-year-olds. Jesus has become tired and worn out to us. His teachings are overly familiar. His call to discipleship has been tamed, muted, minimized. For those of us who have listened to countless sermons and read the Bible over and over again, it's easy to think, it's easy to say, I know what it says. I know who God is. To reach a plateau and to stop asking questions, to stop challenging ourselves but it is this assumed familiarity that causes us to miss the work of God and so one thing I think that we need to walk away from this morning is a is a commitment is a dedication to read scripture with new eyes with fresh eyes to not assume we already know what it says but to come with an open heart ready to be moved ready to be challenged and allow these words to speak into our own life to find ourselves in the story of God To become like children once again. To open ourselves up to the wonders of God all around us. To ask new questions. To try new things. We need to look at the world and people once again as children as well. As we look around us, we need to see things anew without preconceptions. Without cynicism. You know, as adults, I think we often get stuck in ruts. And where it's difficult to change us. You know, after a while, it's hard for us to think that change is even possible, whether it be for ourselves or for others. And so we use those labels once again on ourselves and on others. Oh, he's just a drunk. I'm just an addict. He's a loser. She's hopeless. But children aren't like that. They don't think that way. Right? They... We need to open ourselves up to possibilities. The possibilities that each moment presents to us when God is at work. Possibilities for change. Possibilities for transformation. For redemption to happen right in front of our very eyes. Think about what it would have been like if you'd known Wayne Howe 30 years ago. (laughs) You would have used some of those labels on him. But we need to see what God can do, both in ourselves and in others, to have faith that God can work miracles 
So I invite the praise team to come back up. I'm reminded of a song uh, from the 1970s, a long time ago. Keith Green has these lyrics. Listen to them. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. This was a call by Keith to renew your faith. A call to stoke the fire once again, to get those dying embers back into at least a steady flame. It's a challenge for all of us so that our faith won't become merely routine. It's a challenge to see instead that we might become children once again. To experience the awe and wonder that we once had. Not just in the world around us, but also in the God who loves us.